Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Legends of Retail podcast brought to you by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce so you can learn from them about retail strategy, leadership, and team management, and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, president and co-founder of Convictional, the supplier enablement platform that helps retailers onboard dropship vendors in minutes so they can curate their product assortments faster. Most of the guests we've had on the show to date have been leaders in enterprise retail. Today, we're speaking to someone in the world of e-commerce and D2C, Aaron Spivak. Aaron is the co-founder of Hush Blankets, a Canadian e-commerce business that specializes in sleep products. Hush started with a weighted blanket, and they've since expanded to provide a mattress, pillows, sheets, and many other products that help their customers get a good night's sleep. In this conversation, Aaron shares how he and his co-founder, Lior, developed their products by doing things that don't scale, how they launched their products, and why retail partnerships are important to their success. You'll find plenty of stories here with lessons that you can learn from, including Aaron's early entrepreneurial venture in party buses when he was still in high school, the power of brand building, and building a brand that customers really trust, and why you should consider sponsoring a sports team if you want to expand your audience. This chat was a ton of fun, and I hope you enjoy. Here's my conversation with Aaron Spivak, co-founder of Hush Blankets. Aaron, welcome to the Legends of Retail podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, I'd love to start with a bit more of a personal question about your past life as a hockey player. And I would love to hear how you got into hockey initially, And then we can then segue into how you've applied lessons learned from hockey into your career as an entrepreneur. Sure. Yeah. So my time as a, (laughs) all all my friend teeth are fake, if that helps. But yeah, I mean, I played hockey for 20 years of my life, learned a tremendous amount about myself and about working with others to achieve something much greater than ourselves and on a hockey team that's 20 guys. Won some championships, lost some championships, learned how to win, learned how to lose. But it really carved out something that that stays with you. Uh, and it might be true for any sport or any team sport of understanding how the process is so vital to the end goal and doing the right thing consistently for long periods of times. Uh, lead to eventually where you want to go or or really close to at least where you want to go. That's awesome. Yeah, there's that awesome book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. And I think that, you know, statement alone, that book title captures a lot of what athletes bring to business and often founding companies and building teams. So it's interesting that you highlight that. I was always a little bit entrepreneurial. So when You know, I was in grade eight and grade nine. I started a party bus company that actually carried all the way throughout high school to the point where we were doing uh, well over 60% of all the proms in Toronto. And at one point, that's 1,500 buses a year. So I was always a little bit entrepreneurial. But my first quote-unquote real business was with my brothers and my mom right out of our basement when I was 18 years old. And it was really piggybacking off the health and the success that my brother and I had playing hockey using health as a cheat code because guys were still eating, you know, McDonald's and Subway uh, pre and post games. And we were like juicing and really 
eating whole foods and stuff like that. So, and my mom did an incredible juice fast and lost a ton of weight. So we really used our own success uh, in health to launch a health business. And that was Revitasize where at first it was just juicing. We did it all of our house and people used to knock on our door and be like, hey, is this the place we get juice? And this is 2013, right? So like now there's juice shops, you know, all over and you can get a juice at the airport. We're talking 2013, where the healthiest thing outside of your own kitchen was, you know, a Subway or, you know, something healthier on the McDonald's menu. There wasn't any options available. So we were really early in that. And then we grew that to eight locations and it still runs primarily with my brothers and my mom. But it was a really cool experience as an 18-year-old, you know, signing leases and speaking to landlords who don't take you seriously. They're like, what this kid, what's this kid doing here? You know, are you even allowed to sign these documents? You know, trying to save up and, and hiring staff and the legalities around uh, having a frontward-facing business it needs to be up to code. A lot of things that you learn going through that process. A lot of mistakes I was able to make, which I'm very appreciative of doing early, but definitely a, a journey that you learn a tremendous amount about about yourself while you go through. You know, it sounds like one of the first businesses was the party bus company. And was that basically a way to just earn some extra cash? Did you ever see that as being sort of a long enduring entrepreneurial pursuit? Yeah, I mean, you know, now that I'm 26, and I I feel like 46, but year almost 10 years into this journey. And now if there's an idea or an opportunity, you think, bigger. You're thinking, okay, where can this go? What's the plan for this? Because you value time. At least I value time much differently. I think of how long does, will this take? What's, how am I going to feel out of this? How many people can we affect? What's the reach? You start thinking bigger, but when you're, when you're in grade eight and grade nine, I mean, it was simply two motivations. One was, I just, I didn't want to ask my mom and dad for money and I hated my lunches, you know, PB and J sandwiches, just wasn't into it. I wanted to be able to afford money at the calf or or going by uh, down the street without asking my mom and dad. I knew how hard they worked for their money. I didn't want to be that, that kid who just kept asking for money. So that was one motivation. And the second was when I was in grade eight and we were planning a prom, actually had a tragedy, but not really. The, the bus didn't show up. We booked the bus and someone's dad put their credit card down and whatever. And we're 50 kids, suit and tie and whatever, all looking pretty. No way to get to our prom and our pre-prom. And then I you know, went on Google found one, this guy came last minute, saved the day. And I said to myself, you know, why is that process considered efficient? It's not. And then the very next year when I went into high school, I realized that um, I could take care of that for all the students and money wasn't really the biggest issue. There was very few parents that would go and say, sorry, Sally, I'm, I'm not giving you 50 bucks to go enjoy your once in a lifetime prom with your friends. Very few parents. It was less about the money and more about the structure and just making it super easy. So that was when we, we first started and then the money was great and I got to buy lunches. And then I realized a larger demand was the principal's had a fear around these buses. And the largest fear was not that it wouldn't show up. That's a kid fear. The largest fear was that kids would drink. And underage drinking for a principal, like last thing she want is a bus to show up and then 45 drunk kids get off and walk into her prom. And I was able to go and say, hey, I'll put someone on this bus that will ensure that nobody drinks. And the second I said that and I watched my own principal's eyes light up and she's like, I'm recommending you to the prom committee. You're the only option they have, blah, 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 blah. And no credit cards, like no one had to put their dad's 
card on the line for 50 kids or something like that. I realized that was replicable. So I just went to every single principal in you know the, the district and then multiple districts and said, hey, how about no drinking? And they're like, oh my God, perfect. And then to the point where we grew so big, uh, I started getting some death threats and stuff like that from a bunch of other companies because it is a pretty sketchy space. And then I just, you know, eventually I just let it go where I just didn't want to, I didn't want to deal with it anymore because it was getting a little too crazy, but it was a fun run throughout high school. I feel like we could end the podcast right there and, <laughs> and uh, every future entrepreneur would just take away their lessons. Um, that's awesome. I mean, you basically built a business to fire your parents from having to make you lunch, which is awesome. And then the other thing was you actually spoke to customers particularly, or maybe not even customers, but angry stakeholders in your business who were like actively preventing you from building the business and then incorporating their feedback into the final product, right? Which was like having a chaperone on the on the bus to prevent the main concern that they had. This is going a little bit off script here, but how do you think about incorporating customer feedback into your products now at Hush? And we're going to talk about the Hush mattress, which is a new product. But can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, kind of how you use customer feedback in building new products, manufacturing them and launching them? Yeah, I mean, I don't like guessing. So when, you know, we're launching a new product, when we're developing something that we think is cool or different, what we do is we have this practice and I've always done it where, you know, some people do sampling, some people will ask their best customers. What we do is we do both. We say, you know, let's talk to some new customers who, who have no loyalty to us. There's no incentive for them to be biased. Let's talk to some of our best customers who only want the best for us, or at least we think that way. And we ask them critical questions and we say, you know, and it's not like an email form we shoot out. We literally send them a Cali link and they book 10, 15 minute calls with us. And we say, how how does this product affect you? What do you hate about, you know, your mattress, your pillow? What do you love about your mattress and your pillow or your sheets? Or what do you love about your bedtime routine? What, what, is, what is so great about it? What is so wrong with it? And you start to realize that there's obviously some outliers, you know, some people just can't get it to work no matter what. And then some are very commonalities. And once you start to draw that line, you say, whoa, there's a lot of people dealing with this one issue. And, you know, with, with the blanket, it was, there's was just a lot of people and there still is a lot of people of um, dealing with stress and anxiety and insomnia and ADD and everything around light saturation. There's so many reasons why we can't get a good night's sleep, but if we can mimic hugs and release natural serotonin and melatonin and reduce cortisol, which is that stress, that body heating, that overheat that I can't go to bed. If we can do that naturally without pills and, and gummies and whatever, then we can tap into a market because there's clearly people asking for something. And that's kind of the overall process of how we do it. And it also depends on the type of product. So when it came to mattress, it's a unique one because everyone uses one. If you're fortunate enough, every single person uses a mattress as opposed to the hush blanket, which is a weighted blanket. Not everyone has used one before. So there's different types of questions. There's different types of key things that we need to know. But with the mattress, it was the most unique because every single person we called, we can get feedback about whatever they're sleeping on, what they love and what they hate. And it was super clear. And then when we were building ours, which took almost two years, we used that in the back of our minds as we built it. So people were always over hot. Foam mattresses can cave like a canoe. 
foam mattresses smell. No one knows what that smell is. We actually measured it and it's actually pure toxic spew. It's garbage. It just floats into the air, which is why some, you know, some of these best brands will say, air out your mattress for a few hours, which is a little bit scary because why do I have to air out something I'm going to spend 30 to 40% of my entire life on for the next 10 years? But there was a lot of things that, you know, people were picking up on and we're like, why, first of all, why can't we just that, these seems like quick fixes. Why can't we just make this a quick fix? And then as we kind of pull back the curtain, we start to realize that they're not quick fixes. And this is the status quo in a space that hasn't been disrupted in 150 years, which is Simmons. Right? Simmons is a 150-year-old bed company, and there's been yeah, 60 and 30 and 40-year-old companies throughout that own the space. So just being different in that regards and just using our customers as a tool and say, hey, what can we do to make your life better? How much do you want to pay for it? You know, what's the, what's your budget for something? If we can handle all of this for you, what's what's your budget? And you start to draw a line and say, okay, we, can, we need to build a mattress within this price range. How do we do it? And then we just work backwards. That's amazing. I really want to hear the, you know, behind the curtain story of Hush Mattress. But before getting to that, one word comes to mind when I think about all of the stories that you're sharing, even going back to your early days, and the word is quality. It sounds like you treat customers and even non-customers as a way to manifest and build something of extremely high quality without compromising. I think that there's a lot of D2C brands popping up nowadays, and I think that some founders could feel the pressure to cut corners on quality within various aspects of their business, including their supply chain. How do you and your co-founder at Hush stay focused on quality despite the temptation to maybe cut some corners to preserve some margin? What is that like for you and your co-founder specifically? Yeah, quality is key to obviously customer satisfaction, but it's actually also key to building brands. So a really good example of, of that was last October, we launched a pillow. That pillow, we launched it for seven days before we shipped it. So there was a seven day launch period. And then on the eighth day, we started shipping. And we had 3,000 pillows set aside. We're like, this is going to last us three months, which was pretty optimistic. Selling 1,000 pillows a month that you've never even sold before, that no one's ever felt touched. There's no reviews. like, And we sold 3,000 of them in seven days in a week. And super successful. We were ultra happy. Everybody was celebrating. We fulfilled these pillows. But actually, afterwards, I was thinking... Why did 3,000 people, and it was less because the people bought two, so why did 2,500 people buy this pillow? Like off of a picture, like a few pictures online, there's no reviews yet. Why did they buy these pillows? I couldn't get my head around it. Like I get it. It's interesting. It was a lot of first movers. So let's just say there's 500 to 1,000 first movers, early, early adopters. But why did, it, like, why did it sell out in the way that it did? So I had to ask people. I called up some customers that bought. And I said, listen, first of all, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for your support. But why did you support? Why did you buy it? And I started to realize that a common answer was, well, I have X. I have your blanket. I have your sheets. I have, and they're so good. And I need a pillow. And I knew you guys would, have, would make a good pillow. And then that answer was just over. I knew you would come up with a good pillow. I knew I trusted that your pillow would be good. I tr and the same thing happened with our mattress, right? We sold so many mattresses without any, no showroom, nowhere to feel it. Like this is a bigger, this is a $2,000 purchase. This is not a, a $20, whatever. And the same answer comes back was I knew you guys would have come through. I knew you would come through. So that brand 
component of it really comes from existing customers that join the community, but it also really comes from the ability to deliver a quality product and exceed expectations. You know, there's certain restaurants you go and you're like, you go and you try a different dish for the first time, but you're really confident that that dish is going to be amazing because every other dish you've had is also amazing. So maintaining that quality is ultra important to us not taking shortcuts. We had an opportunity early, early in our business to choose whether we'd be in a race to the bottom in terms of price or we'd stay where we are, just over deliver. And some people in our space chose the latter and they went with racing to the bottom. And we said, we're going to stick to our values and stay where we're at and continue to develop products that exceed people's expectations. And that's how you maintain quality Although it's always tempting to save a buck here, save a buck there. But from our experience, it just never works out. Reminds me of the Warren Buffett quote, which is that it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. And I feel like you guys understand that deeply in your soul and that you're always building your reputation, but that it could fall beneath you. You know, if you make one wrong move or try to compromise on your values, Hush Mattress, huge product launch for you guys. Can you give me the backstory on it? Why launch a mattress? In early 2020 in Canada, we obtained the hush.ca domain name, which means we inevitably dropped hushblankets.ca. And we launched that through a partnership with the NHL team, the Montreal Canadiens, and we took over uh, behind Carey Price, which was super fun and exciting. And they ended up having an incredible year. So it was great value. But the idea was... People were coming to us for sleep. So they bought our blanket and then they would come to us and be like, hey, I love your blanket. I'm getting super sleeps. What sheets should I buy? And we're like, uh, ours, <laughs> you know, or they did. I love your blanket. I love your sheets. What's a good re- pillow you guys recommend? Because I, I would trust, you know, if you guys recommend one and we were like, wait, we should develop a pillow. And then it's same thing with our mattress. We started, you know, many people would be like, hey, what mattress is the best when it comes to having a deep quality sleep? Because I use your pillow and I use your sheets and they work amazing, but I want to complete the set. I want to make sure that I'm set up for success when it comes to my sleep. And enough of that demand when we realize that a lot of innovation specifically for us is we don't tout ourselves as, as huge product innovators. I don't even think product innovators, I don't want to use the word success because it's very subjective, but it's tough to be a product innovator and get your product into people's hands because it often involves creating an industry around you or whatever. What I really love is uh, innovation through iteration, which means if I see something that's already selling and I can look at it and be like, ooh, this thing sucks, and, I, and but it's selling, what happens if we made a really good one? And we see that with a lot of successful brands. You know, look at Manscaped. You know, they didn't invent the shaver. They just iterated on a widely used and purchased product and built brand around it. And many, 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 many people, millions of people use it. Same with, you know, I love the guys at Dude Wipes. They weren't the, the first to invent wipes, but they iterated and people love it. So there's that section of, innovation is where I love to sit. I love to sit on the iteration side of things. I love, you know, we're developing a silk pillowcase right now. There's been silk pillowcases selling on Amazon and on Canadian Tire for for years, but they stick. 
they're not stitched well. They 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 hold the bacteria. They eventually lead with pimples on your face. Like they're not designed to do anything other than meet the tag, the search term silk pillowcase. So we see, okay, people are obviously buying these. Why don't we make the one that's actually good that actually works? So when it came to the mattress, it was very similar. It's like a space where, you know, many, many, many sellers were in the space, different categories. So people sell mattresses for a hundred bucks on Amazon. Still don't know how they do it. And like, I wonder like, what is possibly in that mattress that costs $10? But aside from that, we iterated to the point where we came into a space where like, how do we pick apart these $8,000 mattresses and sell them for two. And we realized that a lot of them were just inflated garbage. There was nothing in them that was significant or that was proprietary. And we're like, why don't we build something special that's different? That's an iteration on the status quo. And once we realized that we can do that, using our customer feedback on what they found were holes in the market or holes in their current product, we we innovated through iteration. And you know, that's it took us two years because it's a very difficult product, but finally landed where we wanted to. I love the your quote, innovation through iteration. And then you basically use customer feedback to build the best iteration possible of that fixed paradigm, right? Whether it's a blanket or a mattress. I want to get into maybe a tactic or two that you and your team have maybe developed or uncovered to pick new product categories to launch within. So it sounds like, you know, you have maybe a hypothesis, a category of products is selling really well. You go look into that, you understand why they might be flawed, and then you talk to customers and would-be customers to build something better. How do you come up with that hypothesis? It's a combination of a lot of things. It could be, it can really come from anywhere. You know, we've been really focused. You know, sometimes it's a passionate thing. So I really love the baby space so we're working on a really cool product for, for babies from zero to three months, three to six, six to 12, 12 to, I think, I think that one's a full year. So it'd be 12, 24. But really just working on um, on a product that would, you know, really have success in that space. And then just diving in. It's really just diving in and looking at, you know, making a business decision, really looking at, okay, does this make sense for the brand? Is there room to innovate? Is there room to be special here? Does the prices make sense, right? That you would need to sell at? Is there search? Is there intent from customer bases? And then if those basic ones check off, you get a little deeper and you start to survey customers and speak to customers. And you know, then you get a sample and you send it out to some customers and you get feedback there. And I know I'm making it sound like a very lengthy process, but you can do that in three to six months to the point where you're super, super happy. Or you can reverse engineer basic search and be like, oh, okay, there's hundreds of thousands of people searching for this. But that method is tried and true by so, so, so many. So odds are if there's 100,000 people searching for it, there's equally as many people selling it. So that doesn't really mean you have something but it just, you want to check some boxes. Like, is there interest? Is there a market for this? Does it make sense for the brand? Is this something we want to get into? Is it something that our, our customers will see long-term value, which is really important for us? The last thing I would ever want is to sell somebody a product. They don't return it because they're just too lazy. And then they're just like, I'm never buying again from these guys, which happens to everybody from time to time with certain brands. We just try to avoid that. So checking off the boxes that make sense for us and then... If they all make sense and they're checked off, then we we put it into our little system of uh, 
of launching and prepping it and getting it to the point where we can bring it to the market. Awesome. You cued me up beautifully for a question on how do you actually launch a product? What you've learned there. Maybe that's unconventional. It sounds like, you know, okay, we have this obsession on quality. We want to innovate on iteration and we want to connect to our customers long term. So you've built this product, you've sent it out, you've sampled it to some customers. Now the product is sitting in your warehouse and you have to launch it. What do you do now? I mean, it depends on the product. It really depends on the product. It depends on the brand. There's so many, so many different launch strategies. Do you have an email list? Are you starting from scratch? You know, if I was starting from scratch today, and then depending on my budget, I would do a few things. We have a unique opportunity now to be creative on TikTok and Instagram Reels to try to seek benefit from organic reach. It's probably the only areas that LinkedIn, it's probably the only areas where you can get organic reach without having to pay at the moment. I'm sure it'll change soon, but I'm seeing a lot of brands that are just coming out of nowhere and just hitting it off and doing really, really well on those platforms. So when you launch, you could A, pre-build your list with really successful viral videos or just successful videos and lead them to a landing page and build up that interest list, which I just saw a good friend of mine do really successfully. He was able to get you know thousands of leads by doing that. And then when he did launch eventually through email and SMS and through more videos, he had quite a successful launch. And that's with a thin budget and then potentially some you know, partnerships and collaborations, reach out to some people in your space that would make sense for them to promote your product. And it would make sense for you to promote their product and seeing if there's something there where you can take advantage of their audience, they can take advantage of yours. But if you're just starting out and you have no audience, it's very difficult to get them to agree to that. So it requires a lot of humility and looking yourself in the mirror. So, okay, where am I now? What do I have to offer? And how am I going to get people to you know, give a shit about what I'm doing. And a lot of that just doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to make one video to one landing page and then boom, you have a thousand leads and then boom, you send an email and you get 200 purchases. Like that's not, that's not, I mean, that's how people say it is. Like a lot of these courses or gurus or whatever, you know, they make it simple. Like, you know, make a landing page and drive your traffic, convert your landing page. Like it's not like that. It does require day in, day out, plugging away, slowly, slowly. And ultimately, you want to drive people to the point where they're actually engaged with you. When we do a launch now, a lot of it involves hype. A lot of it involves education. We're really educating customers for weeks, if not months, in different segments, depending on who they are to us. VIP, semi-VIP, first-time purchaser, never purchased, qualifying them. Like someone who just bought a mattress from a competitor two days ago, the last thing I want to do is harass them about how good our mattress is. Like we want to make sure that we qualify them, that they're even in the market for something like, like what we're about to sell. And then really just educate, 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 and then let people know about when we're launching. And then when we launch, you know, have a compelling offer, have something that, you know, reward your first movers is something that we always believe in. Like those who take a chance on us, you know, and bought those pillows and buy the mattress. And, you know, our sheets have been sold out for six months since May. You know, there's a lot of people that are waiting four or five months for sheets, but there's people who got them the second they launched. And those first movers probably got the best deal because, you know, we always reward our VIPs. So creating a system where people are encouraged to take advantage of, of the launch, of the time of, who take a chance on you because you're going to make mistakes. And then 
that's kind of how we do it. But generally that works quite well. And sometimes we'll add supportive media, you know, whether it be billboards or additional ads, something like that. Awesome insights. One quick question. I pulled up this article from Montreal Times where the headline is Hush becomes the official weighted blanket of the Montreal Canadiens. On the note of launching products and marketing a new product or an existing brand, how did this partnership come to be? I think I know the story, but I would love for you to share what went into that. Yeah, I mean, the Montreal Canadiens reached out about a week into the season. There was a shortened season. Canada plays Canada. U.S. plays U.S. It was a very once-in-a-lifetime season. No fans in the arena. And they reached out and they said, we're selling a spot that we've never sold in our lives. And it's the seats. We're covering the seats. We have no idea what this costs, but we just sold six out of the eight spots for, I don't know, half a million bucks, something like that in that range. We're interested in having a Canadian brand, not another tequila company or whatever. Someone in a different brand enter the space. Would you be interested? And I said, I would, I would totally be interested. I just can't afford it. Like that sounds insane. And they totally understood. They're like, we get it. And that was it. Deal didn't, didn't manifest. And then a couple games passed by and I guess the spot was still available and we were able to uh, come up with a deal that really worked for both of us and we ended up taking over one of the Montreal Canadian spots so the banner that we took was actually their logo which was right behind Carey Price the whole year which is really cool and then that was it it was fun it was exciting it really exposed us to so many new people in Canada that never heard about us or never engaged with us but little did we know, they ended up going all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. And it was one of the most successful years for the Montreal Canadiens in over a decade. So, And we were behind the net for all of it. So sometimes you get those wins, and uh, that was definitely a win. I have one last question on launching products, uh, and then we'll move on. But I guess launching is very scary as an entrepreneur and maybe you're fearless. I'm not. I'd love to get your take on how you navigate kind of the maybe self-imposed pressures of launching something new. Do you face imposter syndrome? And how do you personally deal with the uncertainty that goes into not knowing whether something that you've put tons of resources, time, reputation into and not knowing whether or not it's going to be successful? Yeah, launches are a basket of emotions. You know, there's definitely a moment where you're nervous. There's so much doubt. There's always doubts. There's always doubt. And imposter syndrome is very prevalent, um, especially as you get, as you grow and as the business scales, there's fears, there's doubts. You know, there's a combination of emotions that go into it. And that's where processes and systems being agile are really, really important because if you don't have a process that you can trust and that you can rely on, it can get really scary when it comes right up to launch because there's so many things that could go wrong. And oftentimes, you know, we really believe in speed and to keep moving. And what happens is that if you want to be perfect, then you might just keep delaying. Oh, well, website's not 100% ready or the offer isn't perfect or the product, you know, the label, the sticker isn't, you know, they printed the stickers too big instead of too small. And there's always going to be reasons to delay and stop or push it off. And sometimes the reasons are huge and you have no choice, but sometimes you need to keep pushing. 
And that happens to every launch of ours. Every launch, the day before, the couple of days before, something goes wrong. And then with the, the mattress launch, we had a huge website issue literally the day before. And my partner, Lior, was up probably till probably probably about a 40 hour shift with our devs to just figure it out. And we figured it out hours before. And, you know, we could have easily, the second we, we saw that, we could have easily said, whoa, whoa, we're going to push the launch off two days. But we didn't. So there's always, and it, and it worked out, but there's always going to be a reason to feel nervous, a reason to have doubts, you know, ooh, my list isn't big enough or my open rate's not good enough or there's so many reasons. And the truth is, it's terrifying. That's just the facts. It's terrifying. Every time you launch a new product, it is terrifying. And when we launched, I don't think we got a sale for like the first 20 minutes. And uh, ironically enough, I was climbing a mountain uh, when we launched and I'm like climbing this mountain. Everyone's like dying. We're like with poles and like sweating and I'm with my phone, like, like literally like this. And everyone's like, dude, are you seriously on your phone? I can't even breathe. Like, what are you texting right now? We're like 8,000 feet in the air. And I'm like, I need to see who the first person who buys our mattresses. And then 20 minutes in, like you get that notification and I'm just like, oh, okay, put my phone away. Because, like, you know, you have all these, oh, is the website broken? What's going on? Everyone hates our product. We made a mistake. What an ugly photo. Is the product page wrong? Is the description wrong? Is the photo? Like, there's just so many things going through your head. Did the email actually work? Did the email link work? And it, like, there's so many things that go through your head and then get you just kind of eventually you release. But it never ends. So if that's not something you're interested in, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> because those roller coaster of emotions will never end. So it's important to know what you sign up for. But again, as stressful and as crazy it is, it's always really, really fun. And uh, launches are something that I and our team always look forward to doing. I really appreciate the vulnerability there. I think something that I think our listeners will appreciate is that you need to cultivate a sense of awareness for when the sort of inner fear-based version of yourself is trying to kick tires on a decision or a launch just simply because they're in fear, right? And so one thing that you mentioned that I think is going to relate to a lot of people who listen to this is delaying the launch, delaying the, you know, website, getting it just perfect, waiting another day. And oftentimes, you know, the tendency to do that is the result of the fear that we feel in the potential for failure. And I think, you know, it's knowing that that's going to be the default tendency for many of us and how we handle fear and then moving past it, moving through it, sticking to your timelines, being comfortable with imperfection. I think that was just really well said by you. So I want to just ask, you know, another question about this idea around customer feedback and circling back to one thing you mentioned earlier, which is around, I think you posted a picture of your calendar being booked with customer calls. You mentioned that earlier in the conversation, but one thing I'd love to share with, you know, other people who are looking to launch new brands or retailers who are looking to determine what customers uh, want to buy in new categories that they're thinking of launching. And so do you have any sort of questions that you ask your customers to get the best answers from them? What kind of comes to mind whenever you're doing this type of market research in terms of those questions? It really depends. What I posted was essentially an open calendar invite that I gave to some of our best customers. And I said, hey, Here's my Calendly link. I'd love to, I'd love to chat. 
And some of those conversations were them just telling me how great their time is with the product and me listening and just feeling it and be like, okay, that's amazing. Thank you. And sometimes um, there's some issues that you just don't know about because not all customers will have a, you know, a small little issue that they're like, ah, I'm not going to, I don't have the energy to let them know and never gets tracked on our end. So it's really just understanding who your customer is. Why did they buy in the first place? What motivated them? Where did they see your brand? You know, you might be spending money on something that you think sucks and you speak to enough customers and that's the main thing that exposed you to them. You realize the power of word of mouth, right? A lot of people are recommending it to their friends or hearing about it from their friends. So it's really just about getting to know your customer on a real personable level outside of numbers and data and whatever. And uh, those conversations really help. And, you know, when we launched a mattress, a lot of those customers that jumped on those calls uh, with myself or with somebody else, really, uh, those are the ones that bought. Those are the ones that are first movers that trusted us. You know, just like I have friends that call me and say, hey, you know, I'd I'd love a, I want to come get a mattress or I want to, whatever. I want to get a pillow. I want to get a weighted blanket, you know, and um, they do that because they have my number because they can message me, right? And they feel like they're not going to go to a local mattress store and buy one when they can, they can reach out to me personally because we're friends. You know, is it scalable to speak to hundreds of thousands of customers? No, but is it scalable to speak to the ones that support you the most? Definitely. And getting those insights are really important to us because it really helps us hone in on our marketing and our language and everything around what we're trying to do. Uh, and then ultimately it helps us build community, which is our, our end goal. How do you ensure your diehard customers come back? You know, if the goal is to build community, you want to engage them long term. Is it just serving up new products? How do you think about retention? Yeah, it's both. I mean, it's definitely has to do with coming out with new products for sure. I think that's the case for every brand. If you get stale, if you just, if you're selling the same thing over and over and over again, unless it's food, but even food, right? Like you want the menu to change from time to time. So it's really about providing unconditional value. So, you know, giving an opportunity for them to seek value from your emails, seek value from your Instagram and your socials. We have a Facebook group that we've been building where we talk all things sleep, where we go live with sleep experts and doctors and chiropractors to help deal with some neck pain and offer some stretching tips and whatever. There's just offering value as much as possible. Our goal is to just be the first people you think about when it comes to improving your sleep. You're not always buying a new pillow and you're not always buying a new mattress or whatever. So we don't expect you to be buying from us every single week, but we just want to be the first people you think about when you do improve your bedroom. That's our goal and just to stay top of mind. So when it comes to retention, and there's no timeline to it. So I know like we're not selling like deodorant and we know, okay, every 30 days you're going to need a new one. It's, um, it's more about you might need another blanket tomorrow because your friend just texted you saying they're anxious and you want to surprise them with, you know, a hush blanket, but you also might not need one for another year because you're moving your condo in eight months. And then after your move, then you'll need some new stuff. So it's all about just being first person that comes to their mind. I just want to like highlight for listeners that, you know, here you have basically a couple of founders who are running a Facebook group about sleep, hustling the Montreal Canadians for brand placement. 
and calling up cold calling customers and would be customers to ask them about whatever it is they ask about. It's like, it seems like nothing is beneath you guys in terms of spreading the word, that classic sort of Y Combinator mantra of doing things that don't scale. It seems like you just sort of mentioned these things passively, but I feel like, you know, retail executives, founders, would-be founders don't quite get the amount of, you know, hustle, for lack of a better word, that goes into building a community. I just wanted to, you know, compliment you on that. And I don't know if you have anything to say in response, but you guys just do a lot to, you know, bootstrap the community. And it's very obvious when you get into the details. Yeah, I mean... Not everything is scalable, no, but that's the benefit to, to customers who move early, right? Like if you were an early supporter of, you know, a lot of these SaaS companies or a lot of softwares, you, some of these, some of my friends have lifetime f- access to apps that cost hundreds of dollars a month because they were one of the first people to subscribe. And that includes like Netflix and stuff like that, like lifetime one-time fee, lifetime access, which doesn't scale because you can't scale it. But first movers and early adopters always get a little bit of a different experience than the last person to bite the bullet. So we still feel a lot smaller than we are. We still feel like we can deliver an unmatchable experience compared to some of our competitors. And we still feel like we care more. A lot of our competitors don't care because they're older. They've been in the business for 40 years. They're not interested in calling customers. They've been dealing with customers for 40 years. The last thing, they, they've probably changed their cell phone four times already, so no one can ever call them. And that for us is an opportunity to play into that and create a situation where we can build deep connection. And maybe we can be around for 40 years. So that's kind of our goal. Deeply respect the approach. I want to ask one question about the importance of retail partners in sort of your go forward strategy. And then I want to wrap up with three rapid fire questions. So the retail question, how do you think about retail partnerships and going B2B? Is that something that you and your team are thinking about these days? Definitely. Retail is is an important part of our business. We're in over 200, I think, or 300 doors. We've got hundreds of different retailers from small mom and pop shops to some bigger, more recognizable retail, more recognizable retailers. We are a premium product. So some retailers just don't fit the bill like Walmart, Target, but some do. So uh, like Dillard's or, or, you know, Dick's or, you know, we have the FGL group in Canada, which is like sport check and, and, you know, sporting stores, TJ Maxx, TJ, TJX. So there's some bigger ones that also uh, do really well with, with the hush. It's definitely an important part of our brand because people love to shop or people love to shop. A good example, uh, a good friend of mine told me the other day was they might walk into a store and see a brand, but they love Amazon. So they go on their phone immediately and they search for it on Amazon and they order it to their house and go home. But they were exposed to it in that retail store or the opposite. They're exposed to it on a Facebook ad or something. And okay, they don't quite take any action because they don't really trust you. And then they walk into their favorite store and there you go. They see the same brand that they saw and they trust the store. They've returned things to that store. They love that store. And then that's where they buy it. Maybe because they get points. There's a loyalty program. So people love to shop where they're most comfortable to shop. Having a good retail presence uh, is really a distribution strategy where people can now see you in more places and it validates the brand. When it comes to mattresses, creating partnerships around there is really important. People love to 
you know, they still, people still love the whole lie down test. That's the little thing. They want to lie down on the mattress and test it out and see if they like it. So for us, it's uh, partnerships and, and having distribution in the retail sector of our business is really important. I think there's sometimes uh, brands can be antagonistic when it comes to retail relationships. But I think in some sense, that could be a bit of a naive perspective because the customer often has a lot of trust with the retailer. And one way to bridge that trust to your product is to partner and sell through the retailer. And so it's a distribution strategy. It's not for everybody, but it does enable you to capitalize on the trust loyalty that the retailers established by being able to storytell products for maybe decades. And so I think that's smart. Well, Aaron, in wrapping up, I have three questions as part of our rapid fire round. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. All right. What do you think is the most exciting opportunity in retail post-COVID? In-store retail? Yes, in-store retail or even online retail. Experiential retail is going to be really, really fun because people want to get out. And if they can have a opportunity to experience a brand, whether it be a product or whatever, that's something that they're going to remember as opposed to just like walking in a mall and seeing every window have 50% off. A brand you love and why? I would have to say my good friends at CrossNet developing a sport. I just love how holistic they go about their marketing and how true to who they are as humans. And it's probably one of the most difficult things to do is to develop a sport because you need to do like 11 different things at once, educate and create community and do whatever. So kudos to them, what they've done so far. I'm excited to see um, that sport expand. Love it. And last question, what is the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? There's a lot. There's a lot of things that people have done. I would say the kindest thing someone's ever done was actually during our run for Dragon's Den, we, uh, one of the producers actually went out of her way to ensure that our pitch was good. She spent a lot of time with us. She helped us practice and do all that stuff with her. And our pitch ended up being great, but she was a huge part of that. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Aaron, for being on the podcast today. Uh, it was a pleasure. I learned a lot from our conversation. I'm sure our listeners did too. Anything you want to plug before we hop off? I'm not a big plug guy, but I guess if you want to connect... Uh, I'm more of a LinkedIn guy. So it's just Aaron's be back on LinkedIn. That's usually where I post my business stuff. And then our websites for Canada are just hush.ca and hushblankets.com if you want to check out the product and hear everything about everything we spoke about today. Awesome. All right, Aaron, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Aaron for coming on the show. And thank you for listening to the Legends of Retail podcast. If you want to get notified about future episodes of the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also stay updated by following Convictional on LinkedIn and on Twitter. If you've been enjoying the show so far, thank you. Please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us get the show in front of more listeners. Finally, if you want to share feedback on the show or want to recommend a guest for season two, you can follow me on Twitter and send me a DM at Chris Grushy, or you can email me chris at convictional.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.